0: Well, uh, we are in a little series on the epistles of Jesus, the seven letters that we find in Revelation chapters two and three where G- where Jesus addresses seven churches that are all in a little cluster in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. we've come to the middle of the seven epistles, the fourth one the letter to the church at Thyatira Thyatira, you might be interested, is Lydia's hometown perhaps she was the first to bring the message of Christ there though she first met with the gospel over in uh, Philippi or in, in the, the Greek peninsula, anyway. Anyway, so our passage this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. This is the longest of all the... Well, second longest of all the seven letters. Laodicea, I think, is a little bit longer. Let's read this passage together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." what the Spirit says to the churches so we said earlier that the three letters in the middle, numbers 3 4 and 5 are both they're each a mixed bag that they have commendation from Jesus followed by rebuke from Jesus and he always begins with a positive in each letter and so he does here I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is, of course, in contrast to the first letter where he said that you, you have fallen away from your first works and you need to return to them. Here, your latter works actually exceed your first. So those are significant, positive affirmations that Jesus gives to this church however the way that we've been going through these epistles is that each week we focus on a given theme and I said last week the theme for this week is sexual immorality and so we're not going to focus on the positive things that Jesus says here but last week we talked about false teaching And we saw how the specific false teaching that seems to have been going on in these churches that Jesus confronts is a false teaching that gave permission to Christians to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. Now let me explain a little further. You see, in many of these cities, Christians were having the same problem economic life was dominated by trade guilds in which pagan religious practices were the criteria for membership. Christians were faced then with a the temptation to compromise their faith enough to participate in the official guild activities which included Meals dedicated to the patron god of the guild. As well as sexual activity with temple prostitutes. To refuse to do these things meant social and economic rejection. And Jesus addresses this in his epistle to Pergamum, the one before this. And now in the epistle to to Thyatira. After commending them... For some things, in, as we saw in verse 19, he goes on to rebuke them in verses 20 to 23. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So who is this Jezebel? Well, you remember in the letter to Pergamum, Jesus cited the story of Balaam and Balak to illustrate how the false teachers of Pergamum had bought into a certain teaching which was causing God's people there in Pergamum to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. Well, so the same thing is here in Thyatira. They're engaged in the same sin, but here there seems to have been a woman who is the the leader of this. And so instead of appealing to the story of Balaam and Balak, he appeals to the story of Jezebel from the Old Testament to illustrate how how this certain false female, probably female, false teacher was seducing God's servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we're only told a limited amount about Jezebel. But everything we're told is very bad. It paints a picture of a woman with no conscience and utterly shameless. She was the daughter of the pagan king, Ephbaal of Sidon, who was a priest of the Canaanite god, Ashtoreth. She became the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel, the wicked king of Israel, and influenced him to pursue and promote idolatry among God's people. Ahab was the worst king of Israel but Jezebel is given a lot of the credit like in 1 Kings 21-25 which says there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel his wife incited So she is seen as the provoker as the insider is the one who lit the flame if, you've, if you're familiar with the story of Naboth's vineyard you've seen an illustration of her conniving nature and heartless nature after Ahab died God sent a man named Jehu to wipe out Ahab's whole family remaining family And when he confronted Joram, who was Ahab's son and also Jezebel's son, of course, Joram said, do you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So she's seen as a real villain in the Old Testament after Jehu had killed all the rest of the family he finally came to where to Jezreel where Jezebel was and when Jezebel heard that he had come and she knew he was you know there and that she what he'd been doing killing all her family it's amazing what she did it says she painted her eyes and adorned her head. She did herself up all fancy and went out in the window and met Jehu with, as if she was going to seduce him. Of course, Jehu was not in the mood and uh, she ended up without much of herself left. But we'll, you could read that at another time. But Jehu was the one who seduced Israel to the adultery of idolatry. She was the one who taught Israel to worship the idols Baal and Ashtoreth. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would use this story and choose this character of the Old Testament, describe this woman in Thyatira who was seducing people in the church to adultery and worshiping idols. Just as Ahab was too weak and spineless to stand up to the first Jezebel, so the church at Thyatira, or at least a part of it, was too weak and spineless to stand up to this second Jezebel. Now there seems to be some contradiction in this passage, because um, at first he criticizes them for tolerating this woman, and then later he, he, he says, the ones who are uh, the rest of you, you know, he, he commends them, and he says, Only hold fast to what you have' It seems like there's two groups, though, in in uh, the church of Thyatira. And suffice to say, I have a description of who I think it is in the notes if you'd like to look at. But just suffice it to say that there's a group of people in the church who have worked to try to get rid of her. And a group in the church that sort of defended her or protected her. And that's the, the latter group is the one that he confronts at first. And the former group is the one that he commends at the end. Now, as we think about, you know, applying this and what we're going to take home from this, and what we're going to hear from the Lord regarding our own situation and our own lives today, there are two things that I'd like to talk about. One is the issue of sexual immorality. We live in a day which was very similar to that day when every kind of sexual activity, it seems, is condoned. And we need to notice from this passage and many others in the New Testament that in the eyes of Jesus, some sexual things are immoral. Jesus is in no way a friend to many things the world approves of. Now, when you look at the Bible, there are a number of specific sexual sins which are condemned in the Bible very clearly. Adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, premarital sex, incest, rape, bestiality. But there are also general terms... And expressions which are used to refer to the whole category of specific sins, specific sexual sins. And probably the main word that is used is the word pornea, which is the word that's translated here, sexual immorality. There's only one word, but we translate with two, sexual immorality. It basically means, you know, sexual sin. That which is wrong sexually. So, how do we know what specific sins are included within this general term and other general terms? Well, because it's a general term, it has to be understood by referring to all the specific sins that are condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Here's an example. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't talk much about any specific sexual sin. But he often referred to sexual sin in general by using this word porneia. Obviously the word where we get pornography from. So what did Jesus mean when he used this word? What specific sins did he have in mind? Well, what did the word mean People he was speaking to. They were Jews. To them, the word summarized all of the many specific sins condemned in the Old Testament. Jesus rarely mentioned any of those sins specifically, but that doesn't mean he said nothing about them. He used this general umbrella term and others which refer to all of them in general. Jesus repeatedly drew attention to the fact that the rules which the Jews were following, and I'm not talking about sexuality here just for a minute, but when he came, he, he drew attention to the fact that the rules which the Jews were following were an unholy combination of God's laws and the traditions of men. So he was very careful to point out things which were not legitimately part of God's law. But when it came to sexual immorality, he never saw a need to correct their understanding of what was immoral. He just confirmed the common Jewish understanding of what was sexually wrong because... That was based on the Old Testament. Sadly today, more and more parts of the church are conforming to the world's understanding of sexual immorality. And this is one of the reasons why we who are a PCA church are constantly trying to make it clear that we are PCA and not PCUSA. Because the PCUSA um, has approved of all kinds of sexual immorality, um, not only among their members, but among the clergy. In uh, 1997, they approved a, a compromise at the time because they were struggling with the whole... Um, reality of people who had same-sex attraction, and they passed a law or rule that was called Amendment B, which which basically said that that uh, only um, people in marriage relationships, a man and a woman, or who were single but chaste, could be, uh, you know, elders or leaders in the church. But then, in two thousand and eight they they eliminated that and and there is no uh, restriction now about about any of these things there's whether it 's heterosexual or homosexual there 's no rules about marriage or about about um, what is any kind of sin. They could, I mean, not any kind of sin. I don't, you know, obviously, they wouldn't allow for pedophilia, but but the uh, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, these things are no longer prohibited in that denomination. But of course, Christ won't have his church following the society. They must follow his word, and therefore, we see in our passage that Jesus is intolerant of this woman because she's advocating this kind of thing. You see, the world thinks that our desires are who we are. But the Bible says that believers are not identified by their desires, but by what Christ does in their lives and who Christ is for us. Listen carefully to the words of Ephesians 2. He's talking about the world. This is among them we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace who have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we were all a part of the same worldly system, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh in our mind. But God made us alive in Christ and that becomes the new center of our identity. The reason that Christians are different isn't because of some physical change that takes place. It's not because our drive is weaker. It's because we know God. We know the one who created pleasure. And who tells us in his word how to find real pleasure. remember when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman in John 4? His disciples were off getting food in town. And when they return and offer some of the food to Jesus, he says, I have food you know not of. My food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus wasn't controlled by his physical hunger because he knew of a greater and more satisfying way of making himself full. And it is the people who know that who can be sexually pure because they know that in Christ they have what they need. You see, sexual immorality is not a bodily problem. It's not a genetic problem, it is a heart problem. It may look like a horizontal issue, but in the end, it's a vertical issue. Sexual immorality is a result of our rebellion against God. And that's why Jesus is not tolerant of churches which are tolerant of sexual immorality, because those churches are lying about him. Sexual immorality in all its forms is a violation of who we are in Christ and a violation of the eternal purpose that God has for our bodies. But the second thing I want us to go home with is about repentance. After Jesus rebukes these uh, these people for tolerating this woman Jezebel, he goes on to say this in verses 21 to 23. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Those are pretty strong words. And often in the Bible when sexual immorality is discussed, there is some reference one way or another to the wrath of God. But there's also here a reference to repentance. Unless they repent. You know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 there's this wonderful passage where Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers Do you see how Christ is able to deliver the sinner from his sin? To set the prisoner free? This is what Christ does. He changes hearts. He changes lives. You can't escape sexual sin except by turning to the Lord through repentance. Until then, the ball and chain are just going to get heavier and heavier. And you could see this in Psalm 34. A psalm which David seems to have written about his experience after committing sexual sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And then the weight of it all weighed on him. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm not trying to drive the sexually immoral from the church. The Church of Jesus Christ is a hospital for those who are sick. All of us struggle with these things. I'm trying to drive the sexually immoral to Christ. And of course, if a person continues to advocate or practice sexual immorality in spite of efforts to bring him to repentance... Resisting those efforts, then that person must, according to the word of God, be driven from the church as Paul rebukes them here for not for failing to do so. And Paul, not Paul, Jesus here. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 5, does the same thing. And now we come to the table of our Lord Jesus, where his gospel is Proclaimed in a visible way. Where his death becomes our life. Where we come and partake of something outside of us. That's a gift from somewhere else. And we take it for ourselves and are changed by it. So let us humble ourselves in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in spite of our corruptions. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness which Christ accomplished upon the cross. And dear Lord, we celebrate that forgiveness now by coming to the table, by partaking of the supper of remembrance, by physically acting out that we need you, and we take taking our taking you in this symbolic form unto ourselves. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us not just to go through the motions of a ceremony here, but that each one would be feeding upon Christ in his heart by faith. We pray in his precious name. Amen.